The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please take out your copy of the scriptures and open your Bible to Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. What do you know about the country of Rwanda? As most African nations are, there's a, much of them, uh, they have a rich history of tribal origins. Rwanda is no different. In Rwanda, there are two dominant tribes that exist. There are the Hutu tribe and the Tutsi tribe. And some believe that these two tribes have always been separate, but the dominant theory concerning these two uh, tribes and their origins is that they have always been the same ethnic group. However, they originally separated over divisions of labor. The Hutus were farmers of the land, and the Tutsis rose cattle and other livestock. One historian that I was reading suggests that this separation of labor resulted in a sort of caste system in which those who raised the livestock began to look down on those who were farmers. When Nazi-era Germany began to colonize the region, uh, and they were developing different political uh, kind of overarching leadership over Rwanda, they requested that the king of Rwanda make a new law requiring that every person be issued a card stating what was their official tribe. Before that, before that point in 1935, people would often move from one tribe to another. There were, th- there were a couple other smaller tribes in the nation as well. And it was not based on biology, but from this point forward, there was no longer an opportunity to maneuver in and out of any tribe. You were committed based upon your biology. And that meant that at this time, there were many families where they had large families of many brothers and sisters who were then separated between these two categories. And after this point, only a couple of generations later, we see some, six, some extreme division and mounting tensions that rose between the two groups. The Tutsis were considered the ruling power, and the Hutu were treated then as a lower class. Eventually, in 1994, one of the most devastating events that has ever occurred in my lifetime took place with seemingly no global notice. It seems that the world paid no attention and had no idea maybe even that anything was going on until tens of thousands of dead bodies began floating across the border into Tanzania on the Kangara River. An estimated one million Hutu people were wiped out during the genocide by the Tutsis. Roughly one million souls were sent into eternity at that time by people who were literally so close to them biologically that many of them shared a grandparent. This is a bizarre thing. I was watching a documentary about how the people in Tanzania were questioning how in the world could this happen? As they are watching these, there were two men that were actually responsible to guard the border, and they would watch over, standing on a bridge, watching all of these uh, people who had died pass under the bridge. And they were asking this question of themselves. How is it that these people who are the same nation fight one another in this way? How could they do this? The answer is that division is the story of man. People find reason to separate and to hate. Whatever it might be, we divide over our flag that we salute. We divide over our national heritage. We divide over skin color. We divide over political perspectives. And today, 
in our text, we see how the kingdom of God creates a very different kind of division and a very different kind of unity. As promised, we are returning now to our regularly scheduled exegetical series through the book of Acts. So just to get our bearings, you will remember that three weeks ago, our brother Gideon expertly explained how God moved Peter to go meet this man, Cornelius. He sent Peter to go to proclaim the gospel to this man who would become the very first Gentile believer. Now, this is not a moment to be overlooked, and it is certainly not a moment in history to be underestimated. This was truly a watershed moment in all of redemptive history, and this is not just an abstract reality, but it is a very personal one. Almost everyone in this room falls into the category of someone who would be biologically outside of the scope of the Old Covenant. You were not permitted to be under the promises of the Old Covenant because you were not born a Jew. And until this moment, until this very event, it was assumed by the apostles that the New Covenant would be just like the Old Covenant in terms of its aim and its scope being limited to the people of Israel. So then, God sends Peter in, and he sees this man, and he sees that God has indeed sent a vision, asking him to hear the gospel. And Peter begins to realize, and that's where he says in verse 34, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. If you're in the text, please follow along as we continue in verse 35. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is a Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem." They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one who was appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, that Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now continue on into chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began to ex- uh, began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. 
Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in, the w- in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray that at this moment you would give us a holy passion for your word, that we would not come to this without an awareness of what we are handling in this moment. God, as the preacher today, I pray that you would give me words that are accurate and clear, and I thank you, Lord, for the way your Holy Spirit has been with me in my preparation, and I pray that he will continue to be with me in my proclamation. And Lord, I pray that each person here who is hearing the word would remember and recognize that this is sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord. This is like an atomic bomb that needs to be handled with great care, that we must see that your word is holy and to be revered. And God, I pray that today we would be well awake, and even those who are feeling sick in their bodies, that they would be strengthened, and those who are discouraged would be uplifted, and those who are sorrowful, and those who are terrified of what is coming this coming year, Lord, I pray that you would give them strength for the day, and Lord, I pray that your word would be meaningful, not because we apply meaning to it, but because you apply the meaning to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Three weeks ago, Gideon did the hard work of this text, He was digging down to the main core meaning of this passage, and he actually covered all of the main points of what's going on here in this passage by faithfully covering everything that leads up to it in chapter 10 and even leading into chapter 11. So what we're going to do today, uh, because of those reasons, is a little bit different. I'm not going to go point by point through the exegetical meaning of the text since that was already covered so well. The main meaning is that God loved the people so much that he sent Jesus to die not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. But what we're going to see here is how explosive a moment in history this conversion of Cornelius truly is, and we are going to do that by backing all the way up through the Old Testament and seeing how God was leading things to this very moment. Then what we're going to close with is a couple of observations from the text and then a couple of applications from the text. Let me begin by taking you all the way back now into the Old Testament to get a better sense of what God had commanded concerning the other nations. 
Of course, you will remember what happened when Israel was kind of formally built into a a nation. They were built under slavery. They were in Egypt, and they grew into a mighty nation of slaves. They had many people. They had no power. And then what did God do? By his mercy and grace, he led them out with the deliverer, taking them from Egypt into the promised land. But as we read about that transitional period, those 40 years of wandering, there are many commands that God gave to the people during that era. And the reason that he gave most of those commands was to remind them, you are no longer like the other nations. I am sending you into Canaan. You are not like the people of Canaan. You are not to imitate them. You are not to marry them. You are not to be like them. You were called out and separate. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, for example, says, you shall be holy, meaning set apart to me. For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. All of the commands that God gave to the people about what they could eat and what they could wear and what in the world they were supposed to do concerning all of their actual practices was done for the purpose of making a distinction between the cultures around them. Do you realize that when Israel entered the promised land, the primary diet of all of the people who lived there, the Canaanite region, were swine and shellfish. And God says, no, those are not on the menu for you. Why not? Why could they not eat a pig? Why could they not eat this shrimp? Why not? Well, God wants them to be different. He wants there to be an evident reason for you to sit down at a table at a meal and say, I'm sorry, I'm not like you. There's a distinction between Israel and all of the other nations. So God puts a hard stop on their diet in order to say, you are not Canaanites. And then the covenant that God made with Moses was specifically made with the nation of Israel. There was no other nation that was brought under that banner and there was never any spiritual advantage to them by being under those laws. If somebody who was not a Jew was to go and to sacrifice, was there a spiritual advantage to them? The law was given as a teacher for the people of Israel to remind them that God is holy and that they are incapable of living up to his standards. However, although God had a particular covenantal relationship with the nation of Israel, he always planned on his grace transcending those boundaries and going well beyond Israel. On many occasions in the Old Testament, the Israelites were told to go and to proclaim the name of the Lord to the nations. Right now, I'm going to read you a smattering of passages from the Old Testament, and I realize that there's many of them, but I want you to understand this is quite purposeful. I want you to hear these oracles of God like a rhythmic pattern of crashing waves over and over and over, and you should hear that, and that God declared that his glory must be seen, and you should see that this is not a one-time event that God declared should happen, and this is not a small thing in the Old Testament. Hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 86, 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Psalm 117, 1. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. Israel, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 34, 1. Draw near to him, you nations. Hear, give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. Psalm 2.8, here God the Father is promising the coming Messiah. He says, 
ask, ask of me, speaking to the Messiah, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Who will Christ own? Not just Israel, but the nations. Psalm 72, 11, may all kings fall down before the Lord. All nations serve him. Isaiah 55, 5, behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Speaking of the Messiah. Isaiah 66, 18 through 19. For I know their works, I know their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. They shall all gather and shall all see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish and Pul and Lud, who draw the bow to Tobol and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. They shall all declare my glory among the nations." Psalm 96, 3 and 7 and 10. Some people have called Psalm 96 the great commission of the Old Testament. It says this, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength and say among the nations, the Lord reigns. That's just eight passages. That's just eight small sections that I pulled out. And there are dozens more that I could have drawn from, but I'm going to make an educated guess that instead of being filled with zeal for the name of the Lord and for the proclamation of his glory, I am willing to bet that there are some people seated here who heard me reading these words and began to zone out. They heard the repetition and began to realize, oh, he's saying the same thing over and over and over. And your brain began to trick you into thinking, this is no longer significant information because I've already heard it. It's just putting a slightly different twist on the same thing that I've heard many times. You think that it's okay now to stop focusing because you think that you got it because your brain interpreted the meaning. You know who else tuned out these things? Literally almost everyone in Israel. These commands seem to be summarily ignored by almost everybody in the Old Testament. Where in the Old Testament are the saints who went to the nations declaring the Lord? Where are all of the Old Testament missionaries? Where are these people? Think of it. Out of all the people on the earth, they alone experienced the great blessing of hearing the direct revelation of God. He literally spoke to them. And instead of adopting the vision of spreading the glory of God across the earth like water co covers the sea, instead of exalting his name among the nations, they mostly just ignored those commands. They seemed to ignore them almost entirely. In fact, the, the missionary in the Old Testament who was most effective was Jonah. And he tried so hard to run away from God. He ran so hard that God literally had to commandeer the services of a fish to redirect his course to the right place. And he finally arrived in Nineveh and Jonah preached one of the worst sermons of all time. Read it, eight words, and they are awful. No gospel, no grace at all. And what happens? The people of Nineveh believe and they repent. Evidence that the preacher is by no means the reason people come to hear the Lord. It is the Lord himself that does the work. And after he preached to the people of Nineveh, he went up on a hill hoping to watch the city get destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. And when that didn't happen, Jonah was so angry, he literally asked God to kill him. 
This is a bad missionary. And at the close of the book, Jonah is still not rejoicing in, in the seeming salvation of all of these people. And rather, the closing words of the book that we hear out of the mouth of Jonah, the last words we ever hear him say are these. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough even to die. He's the best that we've got. He's the most effective that we've got in the Old Testament. The most effective at sharing the name of the Lord among the nations. That's their all-star. Fast forward then to the time of Christ. The surprising development that occurred between those 400 years of silence of the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New is that somewhere along the lines, the Pharisees actually became a very missional people. They went all over the place seeking to convert pagans to Judaism. And they did this by making them proselytes. This would require uh, surgery, circumcision, and it would... uh, also contained many other rituals of purification. And apparently, the Pharisees were actually pretty successful in converting many people in this way. But Jesus was less than impressed by their perspective of missions. In fact, in the harshest sermon that Jesus ever preached, he included these words in Matthew 23, 15. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. These people are not getting saved. These people are not going to heaven. Not all people who call themselves missionaries are causing people to change their course away from hell and in the direction of heaven. The Pharisees were just doubling down on these people's destiny of destruction. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from John Piper who said, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. This is what God is declaring when he says in Isaiah 49, 6, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the uh, preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Do you see what God is saying? No, I'm not sending a Messiah just for this one people. That's too light a thing. The glory of God is too weighty, it is too heavy, it is too massive to be withheld by this one small scope. During the time of Christ, the people of Israel were under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. I know you've heard this many times, but the Romans were not the first to lay a heavy yoke around the the necks of the Israelites. After the Hebrews were released from their exile in Babylon, when they returned to the land, they rebuilt Jerusalem. And you can find the story of that in the Old Testament in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And for a time, the people were free to live and to worship without anyone ruling over them. And then came the rise of Alexander the Great, one of the most fascinating figures in all of history. Interestingly, if you read the historian Josephus, there's this amazing encounter that takes place. Do you realize that when Alexander the Great came to Israel, he did not destroy it? Instead, he marched toward the city, and there were people who were priests in the temple who heard that he was coming, and they rushed out to meet him with a Bible, and they said, with the book of Daniel in hand, there are prophecies in this book, and we think that the book of Daniel is talking about you. Amazingly, I think they're actually correct. And what was going on there is God was actually miraculously preserving them from being destroyed. But what does Alexander the Great do? He likes the fact that somebody has prophesied about him. He thinks that's a brilliant idea. So he says, sure, okay, 
I'm not going to touch these people. In fact, unlike every other nation, he does not force them to be pluralistic in their religion. He allows them, because of this prophecy, to continue to worship as they want. And he leaves them alone, and he goes farther east. And then he absorbed them into his uh, territory, but touched them not. But when Alexander was lying on his deathbed in, in Nebuchadnezzar II's Babylonian home, uh, he was 32 years old. He was laying there suffering from the results of malaria and about to die. He was asked by his generals, which one of us is going to take your kingdom? He has no offspring. He has no child. There is no one coming up in the wings. Who is it that's going to be the ruler after you? And his famous last words were, it goes, last three words, to the strongest. Whoever of you can take it. Which one of you is going to rise up and rule the others to the strongest? And this led to a time of extreme turmoil as the kingdom was divided. Israel then became a vassal kingdom of what's known as the Seleucid Empire, and they were conquered by the Greeks eventually, and then by the Romans eventually. So there had been more than 300 years of foreign soldiers putting their boot on the necks of the people of Israel by the time we get to Jesus. That's longer than our country has been a country. And these people had suffered immensely at the hands of these foreign soldiers invading their lands. And in those days, under Roman law, it was such that a soldier could force you to stop. Whatever you're doing, I don't care what you're doing, you must stop now and help me carry whatever I want you to carry, and you must go for a mile. Have you ever seen a police officer... Well, let me just pause. I, I'm from Kansas. I had never seen this before coming to New York. And I still have this righteous indignation in me every time I see this happen, where a police officer will be at a red light, and then they'll flip on their lights, roop, roop, and then they'll go through the light, and they'll turn off their, uh, their lights and their horn. They just don't want to sit there for the next 45 seconds with the rest of us. And to me, there's this righteous indignation that wells up and is thinking, man, that is an abuse of power. I never saw that growing up. And yesterday I saw it happen twice. And I was just thinking, how in the world do they let this power go to their head and do this? Well, imagine the power of the soldiers who did not have an accountability structure over them in the region. Their accountability, accountability structure was 3,000 miles away, headquartered in Rome. And they could tell the people, you must take whatever I want you to carry. What we see later on when Jesus is being crucified, why do you think it is that that man had to help Jesus carry the cross? It's because a soldier said, you must do it. These people were not kind about this and they abused their authority in many ways. That's why it would have been absolutely stunning when Jesus said during his famous Sermon on the Mount, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Everyone listening knew that Jesus was talking about Roman soldiers. There was no doubt in the mind of these people that Jesus was talking about Rome. And I am sure that there were some people in that crowd who silently said in their heart and in their mind, never, never. I'll listen to a lot of the things this man is saying. He seems to be pretty smart. But if one of those soldiers tells me what to do and I'm going to go an extra mile, never. Because if you remember, that means that you have to walk two miles back. This is a much greater effort that Jesus is telling us must be put in place. And that is why, after Jesus says these words, he continues by explaining the heart motivation of a true disciple. He says in the very next verse, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So consider now Peter's position. 
as he walks into this conversation. As he is making that journey up to Caesarea, as he is going with his six friends and those three messengers, and he is traveling to meet that man, he is probably thinking about this a little bit. This guy's a soldier. I've never had a good relationship with a soldier. I've never had a good conversation with a soldier. In fact, I've always hated soldiers. He has been predisposed his entire life to learn to be disgusted by these people. And as a fisherman, it's likely that this man had uh, limited contact with them because uh, as somebody who was not in one of the major cities and he was not on one of the major thoroughfares, he probably was not around them very often. But remember, it was the Roman soldiers who he knew killed his Lord just a few years before. This man thought of the Roman soldiers as a violent, oppressive overlord that were not to be trusted. And that's why when he gets there and he sees that God's in the middle of this, that God sent a vision saying somebody's going to come and save, that's why he finally opens his mouth and says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. This is a stunning statement. Peter then proceeds to preach the gospel. For the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. This is an interesting statement. How does this man know? How does he know what happened throughout all Judea? Is it just because of the gossip? Is it just because of news? Or was this man potentially one of those who was stationed at the crucifixion? Is this one of the centurions who worked under Pilate? We don't know, but this man either knew informationally or he knew experientially experientially that Jesus Christ suffered and died at the cross. He says, you yourself know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning at Galilee and after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach the gospel and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. This is an important phrase because it's one that is used to speak of everyone. It's a way that they could say of all people. In other words, he's not just saying of the people of Israel. He's saying he is appointed judge of every person that is alive now and that has ever lived. He is judge of the living and the dead, and he is speaking to this man and basically saying that includes you. Verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In my wallet, I have a Home Depot card that's a rebate from some paint purchased a couple years ago. And uh, it's a card for good for $80. Um, but it expired in March and is no longer usable. And it is not something that at this point, it's basically just wasting space in my wallet. The offer no longer stands. But friends, I want you to know, if you are in this room and that you don't know Jesus Christ... This offer still stands. This offer has never been revoked or removed. That this offer lasts forever, and for you, it will be something that is of uh, something that you can experience until the point that you die. And don't think, well, I'll just put that off because you don't know when your expiration date will come. 
Please understand that this might be your last year on earth. 2020 that is coming up in just a few short days might be your last, whether you are young or old. We don't know the number of our days. So don't consider this as something that you will put off for another day. If you are like Cornelius and you, you see what is true in this story of Peter, that you are desperate, that you are absolutely without hope, that there is nothing for you in this world that will satisfy you, and there is nothing for you that can redeem you and can uh, forgive your sins other than Jesus Christ. If you see yourself in that way, then you are a candidate for the infinite grace of our crucified Savior. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. There was much rejoicing when this man Cornelius and his family and all those who had gathered with him came to trust in Christ. If you come to know the Lord, this would be one of the greatest ways I can think of to end the year of 2019. Placing your faith in Jesus Christ and having a new birth, a new start. The beginning of the year when the clock strikes midnight, it's kind of a new beginning. It's just formality. Just like Jim was saying, you can start something there if you want. But a new beginning really starts when you place your faith in Jesus Christ and have your sins washed away by his blood. I want to consider a couple observations and then we'll close with a couple applications. First of all, the Bible never wastes words. Luke was not simply bored or forgetful when he was writing chapter 11. He didn't, he didn't start writing that story of how Peter experienced that sheet coming down from heaven and how Cornelius had that vision. And he didn't reiterate that for no purpose. It wasn't just like he had forgotten, he had written it. And the first part of chapter 11 is so significant because the church had no way to deny that God indeed had brought the Gentiles into the fold. Notice there's already a group of people that are coming up. These people called the Judaizers. People who say you must be Jewish in order to be saved. But not only that, they say you must actually begin to become more Jewish in order to be saved. And this is going to be a process that we see working itself out through the rest of the New, Te New Testament where when these people begin to try to add things to the gospel, God greatly condemns that. In fact, in the book of Galatians, the harshest letter that Paul ever wrote, he condemns them so severely that he says, may they be anathema. In other words, he's declaring, may they be cursed with a curse, may they die right now and go to hell. It is the harshest thing that Paul ever says, and he reserves it for these people who are saying the gospel is trusting in Christ, plus circumcision, plus the food laws, plus the Sabbath, and adds all of these extra details onto the gospel. Please understand that right here up front in what is taking place, this is very significant because now the Jews have no way to deny what is going on. Why not? Because notice what it says in verse, chapter 10, verses 44 and 45. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Wait a minute, what is going on here? I can just imagine these six people looking around at themselves, remembering what God had done for them at Pentecost and seeing the same exact thing now on them. And notice how Peter then uses this truth in chapter 11, verses 16 through 18, to prove that the church that God was growing uh, was not just for the Jews. And he was doing something new and different by bringing in the Gentiles. It says, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, 
God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's not a question or a topic for debate in this group. The apostles are not sitting around saying, well, maybe we should put a pro and cons list here about whether or not God has actually saved them. What are the other evidences? No, this one truth, the fact that these people began speaking in tongues that day, is evidence that God was using this as a criterion to push the boundaries of the church further than they had ever gone before. He has now roped in the Gentiles. I wonder if Peter remembered the words of Jesus in John 10, 16, when he said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so that there will be one flock, one shepherd. Here's the second observation that I'd like to make from this text. Notice that in verse 47, it says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? There are some who believe in what is called household baptisms, and here we're going to see a process of them beginning at this point in the book of Acts. And what we see happening is that they will use, in modern theology, um, they will use this as an argument to defend the idea of baptizing infants. And they will do so using the argumentation where they assume that everyone in the whole house must have been baptized. And of course, that house most likely included infants or young children. Therefore, it's right for us to baptize infants or young children. However, these are arguments from silence and all of these so-called household baptisms have disclaimers connected to them that make it absolutely clear that the people being baptized were actually believers. As mentioned moments ago, the arrival of the Holy Spirit in this way made the apostles so certain that these were now believers that they said, to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They are sure, yes, these are Christians. These are people who have experienced repentance and new life in Christ. They are positive that those are now believers. And notice, it is those people and only those people who had experienced the Holy Spirit in this way that Peter has commanded to be baptized. So we're going to come up to those household baptisms again in the future of the book of Acts. I just wanted to give you a little bit of a teaser trailer about what's coming up. Let's close now with a couple of applications, four to be specific. Application one, baptism. The Bible gives very specific instructions to how we should follow the Lord in baptism. It's not enough for me to say what it's not. I must also tell you what a little of what it is. If you have not been baptized by immersion, meaning being dunked into the water, after your salvation, by a gospel-believing church, then according to the Bible, you have not been baptized. It is a picture of Christ's death when we are baptized. It is a way that we show our new life in him. And if you want to learn more about baptism and what it symbolizes and how we are to do it, please speak to me or any one of the elders at any time. We would love to help you follow and honor the Lord in the command to be baptized. Second, partiality. God told Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. We can't help it. He's not condemning Samuel for doing that in that passage. Samuel has no other abilities. He can't look to the heart. You and I can't look to the heart. All we've got is what we can see on the outside. That's why they say that you can never have a second chance to make a first impression. Like what you look like to a lot of people just really matters. Well, guess what? We often prejudge another person and whether they are going to be receptive to the gospel based on their appearance or their demeanor or their t-shirt or any other number of things. We look at them and say, I bet that person wouldn't believe. Now you would never say it out loud but we do say those things in our heart. 
Historically, one of the greatest hindrances of missions has been a nationalistic perspective, looking at other people groups around the world and saying, I bet they wouldn't believe. As people who trust the gospel, as people who see this text, we must not allow anything to cause us to say, God's grace won't go there. If this text shows us anything, a centurion, a Roman, somebody who was an oppressor of Israel, God saved that guy? God will save to the uttermost. What about Peter, the fisherman, the guy who puts his foot in his mouth all the time, that guy who wants to be a leader long before he's capable of being a leader? Yeah, that guy, God saved that guy. What about you? If you are a Christian, you don't have the attributes of an all-star. You, you, you weren't the one who were selected first in the draft. No, God didn't pick you because of your natural attributes. We should not, therefore, look to anyone with such an eye of partiality. And even within the church, James had to rebuke his audience because of their sin of prioritizing the rich in their congregation and overlooking the poor in their congregation. So brothers and sisters, let us love like Christ loved, liberally and freely. Love your neighbors and love your enemies. And let your love be seen by action. In, in, this, in this story, we see in his flesh, Cornelius, he might have been the last person on earth that Peter would have wanted to share the gospel with. I can imagine a little bit of tension there. Yet, like Jesus, Peter saw this man as a lost sheep in need of the good shepherd. Application number three, the glory of God. This is the time of year that everyone starts making resolutions. I'm not going to say a lot about this because Jim did such a great job earlier of covering so much of what I, I would uh, uh, have said here. Um, but what I do simply want to say is this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. We are not naturally bent towards giving God the glory. We are naturally bent towards getting that glory for ourselves, even in good things, even when it's something spiritual in nature, even when you're growing in maturity and someone says, wow, I've really seen you improve in this area. Your natural response is not to say, oh, to God be the glory. It is to say, yep, that's me. I'm much more mature than I was a year ago today. And so what we need to remember is this. As we look towards this coming year, and as we look towards all of the ways that we desire to be more like Christ and the ways that we desire to mature, do so for the purpose of giving God all the glory, for that is genuine maturity in Christ. And fourth and finally, I realize that this has nothing to do with our text today. I know that this is not an exegetical application, but I would be remiss if I did not state it. If you do not have a Bible reading plan for the year 2020, if you don't have a plan, then you're going to fall short you are going to fail. You are going to have many days where you stop reading and then one day turns into four days and then four days turns into 10 days and before you know it, you've just been without your word coming into your, into your heart and your mind for several weeks. Trust me when I say, both from knowledge and experience, that if you do not have a plan of action, you will fail. So I want to encourage you strongly to figure out a system that will work for you, a regular Bible reading program. If you do not have one, I will help you find one. If you want to know how to better grow in reading your word consistently and regular and daily, then please talk to me. I want to encourage you to entrench yourself in the word this year and do not let a day go by without consistently consuming your daily bread. And for the glory of God, commit to a reading plan. And if you need help searching for it, I will help you search for it. At this point, allow me to close this out in a word of prayer. Our God and Father in heaven, we love you. Lord, I am amazed by you. 
just seeing your kingdom expand across that boundary into the, the realm of the Gentiles, Lord, I thank you for that. For it, Without that, I would not be standing here, and no one in this room that I know of, none of us would be sitting here. But God, your mercy and your grace is immense. Lord, I thank you that at the end, when we read in Revelation about the throne room, where people are worshiping and glorifying you, where people are surrounding you as multitudes of every generation that has come to trust in Christ. Lord, I thank you that in that place and at that time, there will be people from every nation and tongue and tribe that are present. I thank you, God, that even in this small church, we are a a little bit of a picture of what that will be like. God, I thank you that you show no partiality, that you are not a respecter of persons. God, I pray that you would please please cause us to imitate Christ in this way. And Lord, I pray that as we continue on into this new year, that you would give us a year of abundance in terms of spiritual blessings, in terms of spiritual growth and maturity. And I pray, Lord, for any who are here who are looking forward at this year as a struggle. God, I pray that you would give them great grace and strength. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.